Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everyone deserves a chance in the driver's seat. For GM and Revolt, that means leading the way on the road to an all-electric future and envisioning a world with zero crashes, zero tailpipe emissions, and zero congestion. GM's committed to making EVs accessible for everybody. That means you too. So what are you waiting for? GM's got the keys. You grab the wheel. Learn more about an all-electric future and the 000 initiative at GM.com. GM, everybody in. There was this, you know, panic because, like, my entire family, you know, trusted this move that we made and it just all kind of, you know, is crumbling before my very eyes. My name is Datavio Samuels and welcome to The Black Print, where I sit with the innovators, disruptors, and change makers laying the groundwork for the next generation of cultural leaders. This is The Black Print. You guys have heard me say time and time again, people see you on the mountaintop, but they don't see you on the climb. Here at The Black Print, we talk to the legends, the icons, and we talk to them about the climb. Thank you. This morning, I'm so excited to be sitting here with my sister, Queen Mona Scott Young. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> of course, your contributions are phenomenal as you think about um, the role you played in helping hip hop go from a movement and a creative expression into a business in your mm -hmm. early career. When you think about, um, you were definitely the a pioneer for reality TV as it relates to hip hop. And I know mm -hmm. you're working on so many other things. So I'm so excited to have you. Thank here. you. I'm happy to be here. So excited for the conversation. So <laughs> let's do this. Take me to the beginning. What is Mona Scott Young's childhood like? Wow. Um, I grew up with uh, my sisters, mm -hmm. um, my single mother. She raised us. I was born and raised in New York City. And at a very young age, we moved around a lot because it was my mother just trying to figure her way through life. Mm. Um, we ended up living in Puerto Rico. I lived in St. Croix, Virgin Islands. Wow. I lived in Canada for some time. And I always say that that um, exposure to all the different cultures and being able to, you know, have to assimilate and, and meet new people and work my way into a community um, really gave me the experience that I needed as an adult to just navigate people, mm. right? And figure out my way through life. And so growing up, it was, um, it was hard mm. because again, my mother, like I said, was, you know, single. I found out at a very um, young age that she was functionally illiterate. Mm. And so here, this woman who was moving us around and finding, you know, a way to make ends meet and keep a roof over our head mm. could not even read or write, mm. right? So that was a huge awakening for me as a young adult. And it's something that I carried with me into adulthood as I started navigating the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you talk about growing up with a mother who was illiterate. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering about the pressure you felt 
in terms of school, mm -hmm. the pressure you might have felt to go to college. Did you go to college? What was the impact mm -hmm. of your mother being illiterate on your schooling? Right. And when I when I describe her, I say functionally, functionally illiterate, illiterate because again, this was not somebody sitting around waiting for handouts. Mm -hmm. Right. Somehow we managed to live in nice homes. She had businesses. Um, she was moving and shaking. I had no idea. And you know, I remember distinctly the the one situation. I was you know out somewhere doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing and and my mother showed up and she's just like oh you're gonna get in trouble and she's taking down this boy's license plate number and the next day I'm like oh god I gotta get that and tear it up so that she doesn't really get him in trouble and when I went to that piece of paper in the car it was just scribble mm. and I was like oh wow and it, it was almost like my life started replaying in my head and I thought of all the times that I thought she was reading something and oh this is why at a very early age my sister and I were helping her with her businesses mm. and all of that stuff so she managed to survive to thrive to you know function mm -hmm. in a world that wasn't designed for her success mm -hmm. so in terms of how it shaped me it certainly made me look at what i had at my disposal right all of the resources and the access that i had and it really fueled in me a, a desire and and i would say a mandate mm -hmm. to show up every single day, mm -hmm. right? And to make sure that I'm tapping every ounce of what I have available to me. Mm -hmm. My ability to reason, my ability to read, my ability mm -hmm. to, you know, understand and, and to create. Uh, it, it just really fueled in me this need to tap every ounce of what I'm made of mm -hmm. every single day. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, a mother who is functional illiter functionally illiterate, yes. who teaches us that anything is possible, that, that there are no excuses, possible. that you exactly. can make anything happen. She's running businesses. I love it. Yeah. Um, and she was, my mother is of Haitian descent, right? Mm. My mother's Haitian. And so, you know, anybody who knows a good Haitian mother, Haitian <laughs> parents, right? You're supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, okay. right? So when I started um, kind of getting out there and navigating life, it was like, definitely, you're going to college. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a degree. You're going to become a nurse. Mm. You're going to. So she never, and I don't even know to this day, quite understands what I do. Mm. Right. And, and it's always been like about making her proud, even mm. though I'm sure she has no idea. But I never went to college. Mm. So that was, you know, something that has always been for her what she would have wanted for her daughter. But she knows that I'm happy and she knows that I'm successful. But, you know. I certainly got from her the the ability mm -hmm. to find my way through life, mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. without that college degree. I have a deep desire to like be understood, and I want my family. Right. So like, there's always this conflict where I'm like, you guys don't under. Do you have that desire too? Or um, no? I used to, but then I realized it didn't matter because she was just so proud, right? Mm. And and she'll mm. say everything from, you know. I'm a star on a show to I own my own network. She has no idea, but as long as she's proud of me, that's then what counts. That's yeah. Good. All right. So I heard you say you did not go to college. I did not. So yeah. how does Mona Scott Young get her start? Oh, wow. Just kind of paying attention mm. to the universe, paying attention. I mean, again, growing up with my mother, what I knew was that I could do whatever. Mm -hmm. I could do whatever I set my mind to. And and not having had that kind of classic college experience that helps you shape your path and what you want to do. Um, and, and also having left 
at an early age, I became an emancipated minor at 15. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I decided that I was grown yeah. and I wanted to get out into the world and, and do my own thing. Um, I found very quickly that although I wanted to continue my education, I had to get a job because mm. I had to, you know, start supporting myself and paying bills. And so I had to make a choice. Right. And and I did not have that um, college experience that for a very long time sat in the back of my head. Mm. And and I sometimes say slowed me down mm. right it didn't change the course because i believe that you know our course is preset and we're mm -hmm. always right where we're supposed to be especially if we are doing our very best at all times and paying attention to what god the universe mm. whoever the higher powers that you believe in like places in your path as part of your journey but there were times where i thought to myself you know did i not do this thing did i not uh, uh, position or put myself out there in this way because there was this small doubt, mm. right? This niggling feeling that maybe I wasn't good enough or I did not belong in that space. And and I worked very hard to overcome that. I worked mm. very hard to move past that. Uh, and so, you know, not having um, that clear path, it really became about what are you good at, mm. right? What are your own natural skills? What do you enjoy mm. doing? And what I ended up doing, mm -hmm. I fell into, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't like I was like, oh, I wanna be in music. I wanna be entertainment. I wanna be a music manager. Mm -hmm. It was a very windy road mm. that led me to management and entertainment. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about your early music management days. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how you got started, um, who you were connected to, the types of people you were made like what were those early days like well if i have to talk about my music management days i probably have to go all the way back because again it wasn't a straight path mm -hmm. into music management i re um you know and i've told the story i went into uh, a dance studio broadway dance center because i actually wanted to take an aerobics class mm. right and i had taken the class and as i was walking past i heard this pulsating music i did not listen to the radio in a way that i you know was into music and genres of music having lived in puerto rico and canada I was a cultural Who needs an alarm in the morning When McDonald's has sausage, egg and cheese McGriddles And a breakfast cut off Ba-da-ba-ba-ba blend mm. so I did not have the classic you know growing up in an african-american community where hip-hop was the music I listened to everything from salsa mm. to you know it, so I was a little bit of a melting pot in terms of you know musical genre so I heard the music and and of course it was hip-hop mm -hmm. right and I peeked into the class and they were dancing and they were getting busy and I was like oh that looks like a whole lot of fun yeah. <laughs> you know I feel like I can do that and um, um, I went and I took a class and loved it, loved the music and and loved the movement and the dance. And the the women who ran that class also had another business that they did, which was they worked with artists on their staging and their development, their skills, their performance skills. Mm. It was actually called Stage Moves. Mm. And I started, you know, taking that class and then I started teaching that class and working with artists. And that was what put me in proximity mm. of, you know, working with music artists. And one of the, you know, early groups that I worked with was um, a, a hip hop group signed to select records called the A-Team. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And and also a young, you know, rapper named Chi Ali. Of course. And um, <laughs> another young group called Black Sheep. Yes, of you course. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, of course. Uh, between the interactions with like the A-Team and, and Black Sheep and Chi Ali, I met the Trackmasters mm. and Chris Lighty. Mm. And the Trackmasters were the producers that um, had done the A-Team's album and worked with Chris and knew him well. And, you know, we all became friends. And eventually I started working with those guys, managing them, mm. managing the group. And, you know, fast forward, one thing led to another. And when Chris was um, starting Violator Records and going over to be the president of Def Jam, I, you know, joined him and helped him with that transition and form Violator Management. Mm -hmm. Talk to the people about Violator Management. I think mm -hmm. so much of our hip hop history is lost, mm -hmm. um, with especially with the younger generations. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to them about the importance of Violator in that moment, in mm -hmm. that era? My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, SelectQuote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, go to SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote.com. That's SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote. We shop. You save. Full details on example policies at selectquo.com slash commercials. What were you guys doing? It, it's so funny because when you say it's lost, even for me, most people don't even know about that history. Mm. And they think love and hip hop is kind it's of how beginning. I came to be. But um, at the time, we were one of a handful mm -hmm. of companies managing in the urban music space, right? Managing hip-hop artists. Can you give me an example of some of the other people? Yeah, there was um, Flavor Unit, mm -hmm. Bad Boy, of course, you know, what Diddy did back then, um, and I think back then he was Puffy. He okay. was Diddy. Uh, what he did back then was started this culture of having a movement mm -hmm. around, you know, the, the artists and around the company and the brand mm -hmm. and, and what that meant to an audience. And so Violator was born, you know, out of one, the acts that were coming out of Rush, which is where, you know, Chris started with Lior and, and Russell. There was Rush Management, and when they all went over to Def Jam, there were these acts like Busta Rhymes coming off of Leaders of the New School. There was um, Warren G and Mob Deep and Tribe Called Quest. Um, Foxy Brown, who was like more Violator because she was signed to Violator Records. But, you know, we were at the forefront of legitimizing, mm -hmm. right, the business of hip hop mm -hmm. and representing these artists in, you know, everything from their record deals, but also in this world of commercialized mm -hmm. hip hop mm -hmm. uh, because hip hop was selling everything. It was being used, the music was being used, but the artists were not necessarily being compensated mm -hmm. in the way that they should be because, of course, their music was all owned by these record labels, which were, you know, all owned by the, mm -hmm. the industry, mm -hmm. not the artists themselves. So um, we set about just really becoming that bridge and becoming that liaison for the artists. And, you know, I'd like to say that a lot of what we did was groundbreaking mm -hmm. at a time where they didn't have formalized management, mm -hmm. right? Most of these 
dudes were coming up from their hoods and bringing their, you know, village along with them. Mm -hmm. So they were being managed by my mans in them, you know, <laughs> like, and, and so we were able to come in and, and really keep those guys in place yeah. and, and teach them and help them grow, you know, within their own skills, but also speak the corporate language mm -hmm. in a way that made them respect the business mm -hmm. of, and the, the contributions that these guys were making. Mm -hmm. As we talk about the role that you played in the commercialization of hip hop and like um, validating it as mm -hmm. a category. Mm -hmm. Let's say the monetization. The monetization. Right? <laughs> yes. So as we talk about the monetization of hip hop and you mm -hmm. kind of being at the um, beginning stages of that, um, one of the things that brought me to the media side, I, I originally started out on the creative agency side. Um, making 30 second spots for brands and at some point in time I got bored of making 30 second spots because mm -hmm. I felt like there were things that everybody was just ignoring mm -hmm. and so we get deep into this world of like branded integration right mm -hmm. and so with that phrase that now is the go-to phrase exactly back then we was just like guerrilla marketing and how do we use somebody else's money to promote ourselves that's exactly <laughs> and you're, so that's what I'm saying you were one of the originators mm -hmm. of bringing of, of this idea called brand integration mm -hmm. how did you get there how did you make it happen what made you say, okay, this is one way that we can monetize in a way that nobody else is doing it right now? Well, you know, it was an interesting trajectory because initially it was about how do we get these guys compensated for the use of their music? Mm -hmm. How do we position them so that they can reap the benefits for their own career, mm -hmm. right? And for what they're trying to build. And at the time, I don't even know if it was the word brand, right? Mm -hmm. Building their brand. It was like building their business mm -hmm. and, and what it is they were trying to do with their music mm -hmm. and leveraging that to allow them to, you know, continue to, to grow their income. And what we found was, you know, when you got in business with these, you know, brands and, and these companies, they had different budgets mm -hmm. that you can tap for different things. Mm -hmm. It would be like, oh, this is the budget for this commercial, but we have a radio budget and we have a print budget and we've got, you know, activations mm -hmm. budgets. And you, as they wrap their heads around utilizing the artists and having the artists front and center, we found that there were ways for us to, you know, co-op, to mm. cooperatively market the two brands so that it was mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. But we also realized that it was very important that we did that with an eye towards protecting the artist's image, mm -hmm. right? Whatever it is that they represented to that audience, that's what the companies wanted to tap into, mm -hmm. right? They wanted that consumer base mm -hmm. but we also recognize that if we just let them run with it they would do it in a way that benefits them mm -hmm. with no thought to what the after effects would be for the artists who have to then go back into that you community that then continue to make music <laughs> I always likened it to chewing a stick of gum I'm like they will chew you till they suck the flavor out and then they'll mm -hmm. spit you out and then what mm -hmm. right so we were able to position ourselves in a way that we were like okay no we could do this but we're not doing that mm. and what if you did this instead because this makes more sense for the audience mm -hmm. they're going to respond better to this mm. so we spoke both sides in a way that especially for the brands that embrace that mm. right and who understood and that's how companies like Steve Stout's translation really came to be right the companies that were like you know what we don't understand this culture we don't understand this world we don't know how to reach this consumer base mm. but there are folks 
who understand it and who understand what our needs are mm. that can help us bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. So when we found that lane and it also allowed us to tap that those resources, that money, those budgets to help us promote our albums, mm. right? Because we were still in that stage where the labels, you know, they were reaping the benefits of the record sales, but they really weren't pumping money mm. into marketing and promotions, right? Mm. That wasn't coming until way later. So it allows us to say, hey, maybe we do this campaign where you use the music, but let's tag the album and we're going to use your budget to put these billboards up because at the time we were still doing street marketing, mm. you know, and maybe we, you know, have that, you know, album date at the bottom of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say we were at the forefront of understanding how to make it a mutually beneficial, you know, pr proposal. So you are amplifying the culture, finding dope talent and help. Opportunity is not equally distributed. To every black entrepreneur listening, I want to make sure you have the tools and resources you need to grab your next opportunity. That's why I'm telling you about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale One Million Black Businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and an extended free Shopify trial. Shopify has made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says... The one million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Chart your own path for business success with the one million black businesses initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at Shopify.com slash black print all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash black print to elevate them you are a protector of the culture making sure that those people who want to trade with the culture um, mm -hmm. ensure that the people who choose genius they are mm -hmm. trading off of get paid and that they respect the culture mm -hmm. right and respect it in a way that they you know pay the creators mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for their contribution mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than just exploit 100 you know? and so that's the third one and helping mm -hmm. helping our people monetize the culture right mm -hmm. in the very beginning um what I also recognize about that moment, if we go back to hip hop, like what year are we in? If we just kind of say like, what era is this? Just oh, so geez. That we're probably in the early, you know, 90s. late 90s, mm -hmm. right? It's around 96, mm -hmm. 97. Mm -hmm. Yeah, somewhere so, around there. And what you know about when you think about, specifically when you think about a lot of these labels, they were dominated by men. So mm -hmm. again, my chairman, Sean Combs, um, you think about Russell, Sim like all of these mm -hmm. people, you were a mm -hmm. woman. What was it like to be a woman in this moment in time? It, it was definitely, you 
you know, the wild, wild west. Mm. And I say that mainly because, you know, the industry itself was nascent and mm. it was new and it was growing. There weren't that many women to look to as kind of a, you know, blueprint, a guideline to say, oh, I'm going to follow in her path. Of course, there were, you know, Sil the Sylvia Rones of the world and who were out there doing it, but in their specific lanes, right? Mm. She started in radio, then she was running a record label. In management, there weren't many that I came across that I could say, oh, here's a community that I could tap into. I remember when I started Violator, you know, I, one, had to teach myself everything, you know, that I knew about music and publishing and, you know, how the world worked um, in that space by reading up on it, right? Mm -hmm. By asking questions. And, and when I hung that shingle and decided that I was in business, I thought the phones were just automatically going to start ringing, mm -hmm. right? And when I realized that I had to actually become a rainmaker and go out there and get the business, I was going like, where do I start, mm -hmm. right? Well, there's gotta be women out there that I can reach out to, that I can tap into. And I'd, this essence, you know, uh, magazine had uh, an issue that was centered around the women mm. in entertainment. And I remember tearing those pages out and putting them up and I was like, okay, I'm going to call all these women and it's going to be a start. Can you tell me who was on the wall? Oh, Jesus. Do you remember? It was, it was Sylvia. It was Cassandra Mills. It was, oh, oh God. Oh, geez. It's, you know, I should know this because it's, it's such an important part of my, you know, it's my story, but it, it was just like the who's who oh. at the time. Mm. And, and, you know, I remember reaching out and one reason or another, they didn't really connect. And I think that was the moment when I realized like, oh, you might be embarking on a path that hasn't been walked yet. Mm -hmm. You know, there is really no one who can guide you through what it is you're doing right now. Um, but luckily, you know, th there was Chris mm -hmm. who, who decided that even though I was just getting started out in the business, he saw my skills and was like, come on board, let's mm. do this thing together. You want to do a management company, then you're going to have to like figure that out and put it together because I'm over here doing this record label mm. and gave me that opportunity and trusted in my ability to do it, mm. knowing that, you know, there was no deep history or experience. My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, SelectQuote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, go to SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote.com. That's SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote. We shop. You save. Full details on example policies at SelectQuote.com slash commercials. Can you, can you remember what that felt like to be in front of the opportunity, mm -hmm. but to know that there was no one who could help guide you and you were going to have to figure it out yourself. Do you remember what that felt like? Were you excited? Were you empowered? Were you scared? It's were you so nervous? It's so funny. I think at the time I was like this, right? Okay. I had these blinders on and yeah. I just was so focused. focused on what needed to be done. A lot of my mm -hmm. career in life has been that where I've had to kind of, in, of late, stop Mm. and reflect mm. and look back and say, you know, especially 
being where I am now in my life and stuff, you realize that they're probably more years behind than in front. And, and, you know, it's really about stopping to recognize and appreciate and, and, um, savor what it's been. But at the time Mm -hmm. we were going, 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 I had those blinders on. As a matter of fact, I had this little office in the corner. I didn't even have a window. If I shut that door, I'd be in there for hours. I'd come out, the lights would be off, everything would be gone. (laughs) And I'm like, hello? I didn't even know you were in there. I was just so singularly focused on what needed to be done to, you know, build this thing that, and I had no idea what it was going to be or where we were going with it. I just knew I had these super talented people who were doing something super important in this culture that, you know, kids were living Mm -hmm. by. And I had an opportunity to help them Mm -hmm. in that journey. I had a responsibility to do what I could Mm -hmm. to help them bring, you know, their gifts to the world. Mm -hmm. And I took that seriously. Seriously, mm-hmm. you know, and so that was what I was focused on mm-hmm. day in, day out. Yeah, I hear a lot of purpose. You know, there's always a mm-hmm. saying to who much is given, much is required. And it mm-hmm. sounds like you felt that. And you, I felt that. Yeah, definitely. it definitely feels yeah. like you felt. was there a high at violated. Like, is there a moment in time when you were like, we can't be stopped or this is exactly what I was hoping for, dreaming for when we said like, is there, yeah. is there no, a moment? No, the can't stop, won't stop, that was bad boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, no we, we had hits, not hype. Okay, hits, um, not hype. <laughs> but I do remember, we did this compilation album. I remember. Right? And, and it was an opportunity for us because we had built a family, right? There was mm. really this um, sense of family, much like what was happening at Bad Boy and at Flavor Unit that we had within those violator halls. And, everyone you know to see them like kind of working together and helping each other out and jumping on each other's records we knew that what we had built within those walls was special but when we put that album together Mm -hmm. that compilation album that had that red v that had the name of the company and you know we couldn't even get them all together for a photo shoot we ended up having to do caricatures right and when i look back on them i was like it wasn't even the same animation okay (laughs) you know like we had such a but we that body of work Mm -hmm. represented you know who we were as a creative, you know, entity, mm-hmm. right? All of the different styles of music and everyone at the top of their game, who we were as a force to be reckoned with in the industry, mm-hmm. the ability to get all of these heavy hitters mm-hmm. to come together, you know, under this one banner, but also who we were as a movement, mm-hmm. right? Because the Violator brand meant something. It meant something to the culture. It meant something to um, all of the collective fans of the talent that we we uh, represented. Um, and it was something special because I know that a lot of people who, you know, were familiar with Violator and familiar with the artist and, and, you know, bought that album didn't even at the time realize that none of them were signed to Violator as a record company. They, none of them were signed? None of them were signed. Get we we managed them, but you looked at that and you didn't recognize that, oh, LL Cool J's on Def Jam and yeah, I definitely thought it was Electra Violator Records. And Missy and, you know, Jive Records, you know, Tribe was on Jive. Everybody just saw Violator. And when you mm. thought about those artists, you thought Violator. Mm. And that was special. That is special. That was something special. And so when I think about, you know, the legacy and what we built and what we left behind, I would maybe say that album mm. was kind of, you know, the, the, the pinnacle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of what we represented. Not necessarily our success, but, you know, 
what we would become mm -hmm. known as, mm -hmm. you know, that violator family. Mm -hmm. You talk about this idea about um, the violator being a family. And mm -hmm. I think when you go back in time, Def Jam felt like family, mm -hmm. Wu-Tang felt like family, Bad Boy felt like family. And then for a long time, I feel like labels were not family at all. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's important in this day and age, what you guys were building, do you think it was there for a reason? It's important when you build a label that the group feel community and feel one? Or do you think it's okay that nowadays some of these labels are just kind of pulling people randomly? I think everyone will say, everyone who especially kind of lived in that heyday of hip hop and the 90s, not to say that there isn't some incredible music being made now, right? And some very, very talented artists. But there was something very special that was happening. The sense of community that you know, and, and there was rivalry because even within the, you know, Violator, there was rivalry with, but it was, it was healthy competition. Mm -hmm. It was designed to push each other to be mm -hmm. better. You know, there was also so much camaraderie. Um, I think that all of that has been lost, mm -hmm. right? You have these cliques and these crews, but you don't have a collective. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your mcdonald's bag as a placemat then that wasn't a road trip it was just a really long drive Bada -ba -ba -ba. at participating mcdonald's of clicks and crews coming together to create a movement um and that's you know something that i definitely think contributed to the music that we heard mm -hmm. and and the sense of you know building and bonding and love that existed within the music and within the culture that to some extent has been diluted and mm -hmm. has been lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of times what happens externally, what happens internally is just as important what happens externally. Absolutely. You're producing external magic because of the magic you guys have created internally. Internally, yes. So you're sitting at this really amazing point in time in hip-hop where again, hip-hop is taking off globally. You are helping to monetize it, protect it, ensure that people are respecting it. You make me sound like a super I felt like I should have been wearing a cape. You know, well, you shouldn't. Like, I think these stories are so important because, again, so many of them get lost. Mm -hmm. But at some point in time, you must make a decision to move on to what's next, mm -hmm. to climb a different mountain. Can you tell me how you got there? Yeah, and, and again, to go back, right, when you, you talk about everything that we did, it was done out of service, mm. right? I always felt like I said before, I had these skills, mm. I had these gifts that had been given to me, but I always felt that they were supposed to be used in service of, mm. right? So everything that we did, one, I felt like it was, you know, my responsibility having been given their gifts to protect and to mm. help with and to, you know, um, to help build and, and expose to the world. But it also, at the same time, felt like I was um, giving so much mm. of myself to everyone else's dream, mm. right? And constantly helping everyone else realize their gifts and what they were destined to do. And although that has been, you know, to this day, a very important and defining part of my journey, I also had gotten to a point where I knew that, you know, there were other things that I wanted to do mm. and that in order to do them um, effectively, I had to give them the same time, attention, mm. And care that I was giving to everyone else's dreams. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, the beginning of me feeling like I wanted to branch out and I wanted to do something different. And I felt like I had, um, 
contributed to a very important legacy mm-hmm. with Violator, but that I wanted to build something that was, you know, going to be more of a reflection of where I was in my life at the mm-hmm. time. I often say I'd spent many years being a Violator. Mm-hmm. Doggy dog, every man for himself. We out here. We're family, you know. But I also, you know, felt like I want to see what it feels like to try different things, mm-hmm. to move into different um uh, industries mm. and to, you know, see what else I'm capable mm-hmm, of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so from there, you start to make the decision to shift into what we now know as Mona Me. Yes. <laughs> my brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, SelectQuote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, go to SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote.com. That's SelectQuote.com. SelectQuote. We shop. You save. Full details on example policies at selectquote.com slash commercials. Did you work on that business plan while you were at Violator? Did you prep and get ready and then once you left Violator, you were ready to go? Or was it you cut the you cut the ties at Violator and then started working on the business plan? Um, it's interesting because Mona Me was always kind of my personal um, services company, right? Uh, so when we would do things or I would executive produce something, I would do it under Mona Me. It was just mm. the business entity that I had. Um, but it also became a little bit of my way of thinking because Mona Me in French means my friend. And I was like, oh, okay, I want to try something different and kind of have a different attitude about the way I go about doing business. So in 2005, Chris and I had an opportunity to get into business with Mike Ovitz. He was mm-hmm. a powerful player out here in Hollywood. He was a founding um, member, a founding, I don't know, father of CAA. He built that company from the ground up and was a huge, you know, agent in Hollywood. And he was starting a company where he was transitioning into management. Mm-hmm. And very, very smart man, understood the value of urban culture and everything that it represented and wanted to be able to tap that. And so he uh, formed the partnership with Violator where we became the urban division mm. of AMG. Mm. And so that gave us like the strongest calling card, right? Mm. We were able to get into every room and have meetings at the highest levels. And I actually developed a show that I executive produced for Missy, Mm. who was a client at the, you know, and uh, it was the first, one of the first eliminatory competition shows. It was called The Road to Stardom. Oh, I remember that. You remember that? Yeah, Yeah. so we did that show and I was like, oh, this television thing. And and I'll say this, when we um, did the deal with Michael, it was important for us to learn the television, the film side of the business. We didn't want to just kind of be the liaison, but then turn our talent over to the you know, film and TV managers that they had. So we, you know, really set about learning that side of the business. And when I produced that show, I learned producing, mm. right, as well. And so that was something that stuck with me mm. and that I decided, you know, there's a whole world out there with film and television. Yes, I could do it for our clients, but I liked producing mm. and I liked the idea of being able to produce things that didn't necessarily revolve around our clients. Um, so in 2008, 
I decided that I wanted to give Mona Me a, a try mm -hmm. and to branch out and to really see what this film television um, thing was about. But I did it with an eye towards like, transitioning Chris and I were still going to work together on a couple of acts we still were going to mm. share like Busta and Missy and so that was going to allow me to have the bridge income wow. that I needed as I you know ventured out um and started Mona Me but things change very quickly and very mm. drastically talk to me the the industry changed mm. right it was 2008 this is the advent of like streaming and you know the, the the business models of the music labels were changing. Mm -hmm. Missy, who we had a whole tour set up for, she got diagnosed with Graves' disease. And so that completely, you know, did away with any touring because for a long time, we weren't quite sure, you know, how the Graves was gonna impact mm -hmm. her. And um, Busta at the time was transitioning labels. Mm -hmm. And so that created like a gap with his output of content and, and music. Music. And so all of these very carefully mapped out plans that I had that were intrinsically tied to my income stream mm -hmm. just disappeared. Mm -hmm. How did that feel? So you are in the middle of transition. You're in the middle of, and I love this, this idea of bridge income, mm -hmm. transitioning from music into media and making content. Mm -hmm. You've been incredibly smart and strategic about the way that you set it up. Or at least I tried to be. <laughs> you know? They always say, what's the, the, the story? They say, uh, man makes plans and God right, laughs. Right, right, right? It's one of those things, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so how did it feel to feel like you had done everything in your power? I'm super big on controlling your controllables. Mm. You did everything in your mm -hmm. power to set yourself up for a um, solid transition mm -hmm. and it all gets blown up. What did that feel like? Were you thinking, let me go back into this music thing? Were you thinking, let me keep pushing the floor? Like, what, what was that feeling for you? It was terrifying. Mm -hmm. It was terrifying because I felt like I had taken a leap of faith, right? And, but I kind of tried to have a little safety yeah, exactly. net. There. And now all of a sudden, you know, there was nothing gone. underneath mm -hmm. me and I was free falling. Mm -hmm. You know, it was um, very, very scary because I was always the primary, you know, breadwinner for my family. My husband, very, very early on, we decided that we were going to have reverse roles in our um, relationship, mainly because when the management stuff took off and it required touring and moving around, we had just started our family and mm -hmm. one of us had to stay home. Mm -hmm. And so although, you know, we met... Uh, while he was in the business, because he did personal protection, um, he made the decision that, you know what, I'm gonna stay home, I'm gonna hold things down here, and you're gonna go out and do this. And I love that. was always very supportive um, of wherever I wanted to take our business. And so when I decided that, you know what, let's try this thing, let's go out there, we created our plan mm -hmm. for how that was gonna happen. And so there was this, you know, panic because like my entire family, you know, yeah. trusted this move that we made and it just all kind of, you know, is crumbling before my very eyes. Mm -hmm. And I talk about like, I waking up in the middle of the night in mm -hmm. like sheer terror and, and, and going, what are we gonna do now? Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. 
you know, and I always credit my husband for kind of getting me through that because it probably would have been easy for me to say, all right, I made a mistake. Mm. I'm going back to this. But he would point out to me that, you know, the one thing I know about you is that you will figure it out. Mm. The one thing I know about you is that you are tenacious Mm. when you decide that you're going to get something done. And the one thing I know about you is that you're happier now Mm. than you've ever been. Mm. Even with all of this happening and you being terrified, I could see that you're excited. Mm. And he was like, let's keep forging Mm -hmm. ahead. I'm gonna hold us down here. I'm gonna make sure, you know, um, that I keep home base intact, but keep pushing forward. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned how to use that fear Mm. to help me get the courage and the, you know, momentum that I needed to Mm -hmm. kind of push through that adversity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as an entrepreneur, I've always been big on this idea of um, iterating. I'm one of the people who probably doesn't plan a ton. Mm -hmm. Um, I have thoughts, I have ideas, I have strategies, and I try to execute as quickly, fail, do whatever I'm gonna Mm -hmm. do, learn, and then kind of move. I'm watching you set everything up in place and then everything crumbles Mm -hmm. underneath your fingertips. How did you begin to pull everything back together? You know, it's interesting because I also credit that time for defining who I am today, Mm. right? Because I remember, like I said, sheer terror, night sweats and panic. Mm. And, and I also remember the, the moment when I decided, you know, enough, Mm. right? The one thing you know about yourself, Mona, is that you'll figure it out, especially, you know, my husband in my ear. And you talked earlier about just having people who are your support system, Mm -hmm. right? You need that Mm -hmm. because especially in those moments where you're doubting yourself and doubting your ability. And I say that period when I actually made a conscious decision to start flailing my arms and to figure it out and to push through, right, taught me really what I was made of, Mm. right? It really allowed me to step into this side of me that really has the ability to kind of get past anything Mm. that life throws at me. Mm. So it it really allowed me to tap and to recognize that I really do have the power to like put my mind to something Mm. and figure it out. Mm. And, And it became something that I relied on through the years, right? Realizing that, you know, um, when I'm in a situation that, is unexpected or that isn't going exactly as I planned. All I have to do is kind of really reset, focus my energies Mm. and kind of laser, you know, pinpoint what I want to do. And it's going to, you know, materialize. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So as, as terrifying as that was, it became kind of my tool Mm. for, for pushing past. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, once I was able to stabilize going, okay, so what are you going to do now? Mm -hmm. There was this woman that I had met and she turned out to be almost like a, a guardian angel, Mm -hmm. right? She came into my life in that period and she was trying to do some things in music, but she also had a, um, background in cosmetics and beauty products. Mm -hmm. And she was like, look, I've got this brand that I want to launch. Why don't you come in and help me launch this brand? And so I worked with her for some time and we launched the brand of cosmetics out in London Mm -hmm. and she had, you know, her daughters and it gave me a piece of business that I was able to do. It was like a little bit of a foothold, right? And so, So that helped me get through um, the 
the initial rough period mm -hmm. and then it was like okay what comes next mm -hmm. and I met all of these folks in television and I started making those rounds again mm -hmm. and at the time Yandy Smith who had been my intern right back at Violator she'd gone off and she was doing her thing and she was managing Jim Jones she came into you know the company and and was working with me again and brought Jim as a client and they had this project that they'd been trying to get off the ground at mm -hmm. VH1 um, so the dots started connecting, right? Mm -hmm. I, I had an opportunity to kind of um, put some pieces together that became, you know, the love and hip hop that people know today. Mm -hmm. When is the first time you go celebrate a win and a victory for Mona Me Productions? Like, when is the first time you say, mm -hmm. we did it? I think probably when we launched the first season, right? Everything up to that point was still kind of, okay, we did this thing. It's just a means to an end. It's a bridge to, you know, over, um, to, to, to tide us over. But there wasn't like this real thing that felt like, okay, this is what the company is going to do. Mm -hmm. So that first season of Love and Hip Hop, when, you know, I did that screening at my home for the bloggers and stuff and the response that we got and seeing, you know them then go out and talk about the show I was like oh we've we got, got something, something here mm -hmm. and it felt like something that could be a staple of foundation you know for the company and what Monami would become so in that moment in time what is the dream for love and hip-hop become are you thinking that it's gonna be this massive umbrella franchise with all of these different cities and look like what was the dream you know it's interesting because they, I don't think any of us knew what it was going to be, mm. but it was specifically kind of built in the same way that Violator was built. Like, how do we create this umbrella, this, you know, space that houses all of these talented people mm. under one banner? And, you know, that's what Love and Hip Hop was designed to be, this kind of umbrella where all of this art, the talent could come in and out of it from the very start, mm. right? It started out with Jim Jones, but once it went from being a show about Jim to being this, you know, banner about the world and relationships in mm. the world, right? We saw that there was the potential for this thing to exist in multiple cities because hip hop existed everywhere and, you know, relationships are universal. And so we knew that there was something special there. Um, but for the company, it was the beginning of me understanding that there could be more productions and what I was going to eventually do was figure out the mechanics of physically producing these shows mm. to not only be responsible for what was happening in front of the cameras but to also understand how to put it together behind the scenes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right and so Monami you know became a physical services production company. Mm. Very different from just executive producing a project. And can you explain that difference for the sure. audience? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, there are tons of people, creatives, who can executive produce a project. They come in, they bring the idea, they bring the talent, but then usually they're partnered with a physical services production company. Mm. This is the company that's gonna come in and physically make the show, right? Get all the equipment and the gear, hire all the crew, make sure all of the moving pieces that it takes to put that 
piece of content together that you see in front of the camera, you know, the clearances, you know, everything soup to nuts. So that's what we became a physical services production company. And why was that important for the business? So you're going from ideator creative to more vertically integrated. I can do it soup to nuts. Why was it important for you to make that transition? Because that's really where, you know, I'm building in a physical asset, right? A company that can be invested in, that can be acquired, that has tang you know, mm -hmm. tangible monetary value versus it all being about my skills and my contribution, mm. right? Prior to that, I was executive producer creator of the franchise, but not being the person that has the physical assets that can be sold. That's the difference between building a business and a company and being, you know, a creative contributor. So as you make this shift from being creative leader to someone who is building a company with tangible assets that can do everything soup to nuts. What is the first or second or third expressions or uh, products that are coming out of this company that you're excited about? You know, it's interesting because um, we still do a bunch of specials around Love & Hip Hop and the franchise. So we have some specials that are coming up around the franchise, but one project in particular comes to mind because it's uh, a labor of love mm. and it actually put me in business with 50 mm. again years later. Um, and that's a project called Hip Hop Homicides. Mm. That project was born out of 50s desire to just shine a light on the staggering number of murders that have happened right mm. right now today it's almost every other day mm -hmm. we're seeing a rapper killed you know or or someone in the hip-hop space and we just wanted to tell these stories in a way that we're not only focused on the murders themselves but also focused on talking to the entire communities mm -hmm. that were affected by and impacted by the deaths and also getting to know those victims in a different way mm -hmm. Right, hearing from the mothers and the friends and the family members and, and humanizing them a little bit because. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. I think right now with everything that happens and it happening in open forum and on social media, the kids are desensitized. Mm -hmm. You know, they're seeing these horrific um, murders happen before their very eyes. And back in our day, we had, what, two, yes, two deaths, yes, yes. Pac and Biggie. Yes, and, and we were devastated. We were devastated. <laughs> and, and right now, it's just the frequency. Yeah. I think and, we did a stat that said in the last year and a half, there have been 300 rappers killed, most of them unsolved crazy Un unbelievable yeah, un and so we wanted to take a holistic mm -hmm. view at the environment mm -hmm. right the upbringing the environmental you know um conditions mm -hmm. and and things that lead mm -hmm. them to the lives that they live mm -hmm. in a way that hopefully will shed some light but also create some understanding mm -hmm. right and if we can answer questions if we can uncover leads if we can you know maybe solve or bring closure 
right? That would just be a blessing, but really it's about taking another look at their lives and, and really trying to, you know, preserve their legacies. Yeah, at Revolt, we're super big about this idea that we need to control our own narratives. Mm -hmm. And I love everything that you're saying, watching two black people tell the story of these black rappers, mm -hmm. your lens and your perspective, let's make sure they feel human. Let's yes. make sure people see all the layers of who they are, exactly. all the nuances. Like, and all the things that contributed to mm -hmm, what led how them How they got there. there. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm, I love it, I love mm -hmm. it, I love it. Um, look, I've had a phenomenal time with you here on this show. When does Hip Hop Homicides come out? Oh, thank you. Yes, it would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Hip Hop Homicide starts airing uh, November 3rd on WeTV. And uh, every Monday after that, you can watch it on All Black. It streams on All Black. Beautiful. Yes. With that, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank, Thank you. you so much for giving your time and your attention. Um, before I close, I just wanted to see if you have anything that you want to say, any closing words for the audience. No, you know, every time I sit and have these conversations, I realize it's been a hell of a life. Mm -hmm. I feel incredibly, you know, blessed and, and lucky to have had the opportunity to have touched so many, you know, incredible artists throughout the course of my career. So. I'm just grateful. Thank you so much for the time and mm. thank you for allowing me to tell my story. Mm -hmm. So in Mona Scott Young's story is also um, incredible lessons about the power of being able to pivot, the power of being able to iterate, and the power of being willing to reinvent ourselves as we see her go from um, someone who's in talent management finding their way to the person who created the definitive series for hip hop and reality TV to the person who is now building this incredible company that business investors investing in, um, owning everything soup to nuts. And so I love that part um, of her story. I love also this notion that we as black people have to be the keepers, the protectors of our culture, that it is up to us to make sure that other people respect what we bring to the table. And part of that respect, by her story is making sure that the people whose genius is being leveraged, those people get to benefit from the monetization of that genius. And so, so many great lessons Thank to learn you. from you. So yeah, many no, um, incredible that. things that you've done for the culture. And I'm grateful that you took the time to share your entire story um, because we know that you are an incredible woman who has lived an incredible life. And we just want to make sure that the whole world gets no, to see you for who I you are. and I appreciate that. You summed it up so perfectly. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is Mona Scott Young. Tune in to Hip Hop Homicides, Thursday, starting November 3rd on WeTV, and catch all new episodes streaming on Mondays on allblack.tv.
If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.